Welcome to the Short Term Show, the show about short term rentals and long term wealth, with real property owners hosting real properties who are crushing it in the vacation and short term rental space. And here's your host, Avery Carl. Good morning, short-term shoppers. Welcome back to the show. Today, we have an investor who owns properties in four different states, around 10 short-term rental units. She owns everything from condos on the beach to cabins in the mountains to a million and a half dollar house hack that she short-term rents while she lives in a small apartment above the garage. She is also a short-term shop agent in the Smoky Mountains. I am very excited to introduce you to Miss Karen Chenille. Let's get started. Hey guys, welcome back to the Short Term Show. Today we have Karen Chenille, one of the most experienced short-term rental investors in more markets than I have actually ever met any short-term rental investors. So hey, Karen, how are you, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Super excited to be here today talking to you. Awesome. Me too. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got into real estate investing? Uh, so I got into real estate investing by buying a convenience store of all things. I took what I thought at the time was a huge amount of money. It was a $48,000 loan out of my 401k to use for improvements on a convenience store in Bennington, Vermont. We bought the store. We got it at a great price. It was $125,000. It was a distressed sale. The owner had actually gone bankrupt and it had sat vacant for like two months. I drove back and forth by this thing every month and uh, I knew the girl who used to manage it. So I reached out and I contacted her and said, Hey, you know, if I buy this thing, will you come work for me? So we wound up buying it with $48,000, got an SBA loan, um, really brought the business back to life. Essentially we flipped it. So in about the four year mark, we sold the store and we had uh, quite a tidy sum of money that uh, we rolled into a 1031 exchange and we went and bought our first two short-term rentals down. It was actually three. I bought three over the course of about nine months with that money um, down in Biloxi. And so we that's really where it all started. And then um, as time went on in Biloxi, I wound up selling one of my units there and bought uh, some property over in the Panhandle. And then also with my husband's um, 401k money, because he was at the age where he could withdraw it without being penalized. That's how we got started in investing in the Smokies. The two properties we acquired in the Smokies were, were money out of his 401k. Awesome. So Biloxi, Mississippi, I'm from Mississippi. So when people are telling me that they're investing in short-term rentals in Mississippi, I'm like, what are y'all doing? Nobody wants to go to Mississippi. Tell me how you landed on Biloxi, Mississippi. Uh, so we were, we took a cruise out of the port of New Orleans and on either end of the cruise, we had a, like a long weekend essentially. So on the second of the long weekends, we hopped on a Harley and we took a trip out. We just wanted to go see the beach. And so um, we drove out to Biloxi and it was pretty weird because I was actually on my phone on the back of the bike um, texting and screwing around and we get, one and I suddenly like, <laughs> nothing else to do back there. <laughs> and, uh, I looked up and I was like, I kind of noticed out in the corner of my eye, like water and white sand. I'm like, what the hell is this? And at that point in time we were in Gulfport and I'm looking around and I'm like, oh my God, like that's a white sand beach. 
and I was instantly like, I knew we were going to have this money out of this 1031 coming available. And I just didn't know where I was going to, what market I was going into. So I pulled up my phone and I got on realtor.com. I'm thinking these beachfront properties are going to be half a million, $600,000. And there was a condo for $179,000. I might actually have been two. I went under contract for 179. And I'm like, holy smokes. And so I started looking at other stuff. And, I, and then this was before I even knew that Biloxi had casinos. It has a pretty decent concert venue. There's just actually a ton of stuff, a lot of year round draw and demand in Biloxi. So, and that's one of my key criteria when I invest in a market is what are the other things to do there and what's the seasonality of the market. So um, it was kind of cool that we um, wound up investing there I bought, like I said, I bought the three properties um, pretty quickly and, you know, they don't do too bad. Um, they've since passed some regulations, which I was kind of in the middle of when it happened, um, which is a story for like another podcast that things not to do um, and things don't ever take on city hall because you'll probably lose. Um, but they're doing pretty well. There's actually only one very small area now that you can short-term rent in Biloxi. And I happen to own two condos in that area. So for me, it was a really great experience because not only has my performance of my rental gone up, but also the market value has because now it's limited supply. And there's really not a ton of places in this particular zone that you could build and add more inventory. So we're in a really great place in Biloxi. And the rates have actually gone up a ton this year like probably at 30 to 40% as I think is a result of that legislation that the city council passed where they changed all the zoning on where you could do it. Well, that's pretty cool. So your property value has also probably gone up quite a bit too, because now it's a scarce resource basically to have a short-term rental. Yep. It sure has. Yeah. And they sell for, they, they sell like right away. It's funny. I was going to sell one of mine. Um, I since decided not to, but and I asked a lot for it. I thought, well, I'm probably never going to get this. And uh, somebody offered me cash. Like within two weeks, I had a cash offer on the side. Couldn't believe it. Um, so I, d I decided not to sell it, like I said, but they're definitely in demand. Definitely in demand, for sure. And uh, I don't know if I'd buy another one there, though. They don't compare to some of the other markets in them. And it's doing well, but compared to some of the other stuff I can get my hands on, probably not as well. Gotcha. It, shopping for short-term rentals on the back of the bike. Harley, right? What kind of bike? Uh, so we had a rental and it was a road glide. Okay, cool. Awesome. We've got a road king in the garage. <laughs> well, we have two Harleys. So this was a rental Harley, but I we have two of our, our own. I brought, drive a road glide and my husband's got a street glide. So we love, we love them. It's actually starting to warm up here in the Smokies. So we're going to be out on them hopefully Saturday. That sounds awesome. So tell me, so you mentioned the Smokies, you mentioned Biloxi. Tell me which markets, what does your portfolio look like? What markets do you own short-term rentals? What sizes are they? Touch on that a little bit. Okay. So in Vermont, I have three short-term rentals. This is where it all started. I've got uh, a studio, which is at the base of Mount Snow. Um, it's almost ski on, ski off. Like you have to walk about five minutes with your skis on your back to hit the magic carpet, which is essentially a, a chairlift, if you will, a lift up to the mountain. Uh, I have another one at the base of Mount Snow as well. That one, I did some creative financing and I bought it inside of a self-directed IRA. 
Uh, that one is definitely ski on, ski off. It's a one bed. It's it's really nice. Um, they both do super awesome in the winter. Um, in the summer and other seasons, they're just not so great. They pretty much cover their costs, but that's about it. And then um, when we started in Vermont, I was airbnb my rooms in my house. And uh, we have since moved from that house. We're living in the Smokies now. So I short-term rent my entire house up there. So it doesn't make a ton of money, but it certainly doesn't cost me anything to carry it, which is kind of what my goal was. I wasn't looking to make a million dollars because of where this thing is located. It just, I don't think it ever would, but uh, it certainly covers its costs. So um, here in Tennessee, I own two. I have a 3.3 out in Weirs Valley with a really phenomenal view that from a performance standpoint, absolutely kills it. And then um, if you see in the background behind me, if you're watching this on YouTube, we've got a 3-2, which is in Pigeon Forge, like downtown, um, Bearco Fall, Falls Development. Um, this one is also doing really well. I've actually gone up a whole bunch of my rates on this one because of, I'm starting to realize the value of like being close in downtown, especially from like a driving standpoint when it gets busy around here. I think I was undercharging for it in past years. And then I already told you all about the two that I have in Biloxi. And then I also have two in Florida. Um, I bought them both in the same uh, condo complex I own in the shores of Panama. I bought a penthouse unit. And then I bought um, a unit that is essentially like right out on the ocean. Um, actually, I was just looking over the numbers of those today. And uh, they're doing really good. I'm super happy with them. Uh, and I'm super happy with how they did last year, too. I kind of wasn't really paying a lot of attention to what was going on until I looked at all my tax records and stuff for this, this 2020. And they did great. But I don't know that they beat the Smokies necessarily, especially when you talk about seasonality like there is a huge drop off in the florida market and the biloxi market for that matter right around i would say middle to the end of august it, it's just like a steep decline in occupancy and rates um which you typically do not see in the smokies the smokies are a lot more steady for a demand standpoint absolutely so let's touch on condos really quick. So you own both single families and condos. I know a lot of new investors, when they see the word condo, they they run for the hills. They're terrified of condo fees. They don't even bother looking at what the condo fees cover. Talk a little bit about what it's like to own a condo, pros and cons. Um, so what do I like about owning condos? Typically, they're a little bit less than buying like a single family arrangement. Um, I also like the fact that all of the maintenance is taken care of on the outside of the building. Like you essentially don't have to worry about anything. You can offer a higher level of amenity, uh, inside a condo. Cause you like all the buildings that I own in, they have amazing gyms. They have really nice pools. Um, so I think that's a plus. The downside I would say is do your homework on the association. Um, I bought at Shores of Panama. I've never gotten burned by a condo association before. So I really, honestly, during the due diligence period, I kind of fell down on the job. Um, so I got the two condos and figured out after the fact that the condo association, um, the board had a lot of drama going on with it. And there was just a lot of contention and, and um, a lot of deferred maintenance going on in the building. So um, it's since improved. We changed the board members, but during the summer last year, so this condo is the other thing you need to look out for. This thing's in a high rise and I bought 
a penthouse. I'm on the 23rd floor and my other one's on the 15th floor. So the elevators in the building were not that great. Um, but this is a common complaint on all the condos in Panama City Beach that are high rises. So I was getting ding last summer on um, parking garage, which is something completely out of my control. I got dinged on the elevators. Um, again, out of my control. Like you can complain to the association all you want, but they can only do what they can do. So we had a lot of um, people, even though like both of my units are stunning and we spend a lot of money on these things. They're decorated professionally. They are gorgeous. And it doesn't seem to matter, you know, like you can provide a really nice experience inside the unit, but if the amenities that support your unit are not that great or there's challenges or it's dirty or whatever, you're going to get downgraded for that. So just keep that in mind when you're buying the condo, do your homework on the association, look at their budget, see if it's appropriately funded. Um, state by state, there's certain laws that say they have to keep a certain amount in reserve. And if they don't, then there has to be a, a vote from the association, essentially, uh, whether to keep that number smaller. So just do your homework. I didn't. Um, would I have bought there anyway? I think I would have, because in this particular complex, um, the returns and the cash and cash and all that were really like way above anything else in Panama City Beach. And to top it off, I mean, they have this amazing resort style pool. This thing is humongous right in the center of the building. So I would do it again. I just, I would be more mindful about the due diligence process. And that is definitely on you as the buyer to make sure that you're doing the due diligence on all of the HOA stuff and anything else that might come up. But HOAs with condos are definitely a big one. Yeah, big time. So how were you able to fund these condos? So they're in high rises. That tells me they're probably not warrantable. What kind of financing did you use to get these condos? So last summer, the banking rules were a little bit different than what they are right now. So just if you're ever watching this in the future, that was this summer of 2020. Um, so we had, a. I remember I said I had three units in Biloxi. Um, one of those skirmishes that I had with City Hall, the outcome was that one of the units that I bought, even though I was told it, it was in the bylaws, I could short term minute and everything, the city came back and when I applied for a variance and they said no, which caused this huge stir and the rezoning and the whole nine yards. So I sold it, made a phenomenal amount of money on it. It was actually a good thing. And so I 1031 into um, the two units uh, down in Florida. Um, one of them I bought with a 10% down home loan. And then the other one wound up being like a conventional 20% down. And it was the same way for my condos in Biloxi. One was 10% and then one was all cash. And the other one, actually the other two were both cash. Okay. So you've done a mix of financing and cash and you have utilized those 10% down vacation home loans, which can be really, really useful when getting into, especially getting into more markets than one with short-term rentals, because you can use one 10% down vacation home loan per market. And that's on the individual basis. So if you both qualify, there are some lenders that will allow each of you to get a 10% down loan. It's a little bit on the risque side, like you could be subject to audit and not all lenders like to do it. But technically, the one, the, num the number is attached to the taxpayer ID. So if you can both afford to do it and your lender, you tell them in advance what you're looking to do, 
you know, you might be able to do it, but it's not all lenders that are willing to do that because it is kind of, kind of skirting the line there a little bit. So you mean doing one in one spouse's name and one in the other spouse's name? Yeah. Yeah. I have heard of some lenders that say absolutely not. And then some say, yes, you can. So it really just depends on the lender and what their overlays are with their, with their bank or brokerage. Absolutely. Yep. The rules are all different. That's why you got to shop it around and just keep asking if one lender tells you no, go to the next one. I 100% agree with that. There have been times in my investing career where I thought, oh, well, I guess I can't get this loan on this place that I'm under contract on, which now you can't, it, the market is way too hot. You can't just not be able to get, you, can, you can't go in without already having that loan pre-approval, but I have done that in the past. I don't recommend doing that, but uh, you really do just have to call until somebody says yes. Eventually, someone is going to have a product that works for what you're trying to do. Yes, absolutely. Yep. I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, so we have a third property here in the Smokies under contract. It's a, it's a pretty big house and it's got a detached building on it. Um, I have a VA loan. It's going to be our primary residence. So I'm absolutely eligible to borrow this, to buy this thing with a VA loan. For those of you in the audience that don't know, uh, a VA loan entitles you to buy a property with 0% down and no funding fees, which is amazing. This particular property happens to cost $1.5 million. Um, the rates on VA loans are also equivalent to like what you would typically see in the market for like first time home loans. So it is an incredible product. Um, so I went to one lender, I was told, you know, you got to have your loan, you know, you have to buy it down below a million dollars. And so I was actually on a mission when I first started to liquidate some stuff because I was going to like pay cash for half a million of it. The ultimate plan for this property, I should also state, is that we're going to be living in an apartment over the garage and then renting the primary house out as an Airbnb from time to time. And that's completely allowable. That's like totally within the guidelines because the whole property is being bought as a primary residence. And so one lender said, you know what? You can't do over a million dollars. Sorry, go home. And I was like, well, I don't want to buy this thing down below. And so I, I got a lead on a different lender and um, called the lender. And he's like, hell yeah, we can do that. No problem. Send me your financial information. And so he looked it over. And he was like, yeah, you should have no problem doing this. You just need to wait till you have your tax returns. And so it just goes to show that every lending house has its own rules and regulations. Whereas this particular bank was no, had no issue funding a VA loan up to $1.5 million. This other bank did, and they were going to try to force me to buy it down below the million-dollar mark. And I was actually going to accept that for an answer. Like, I'm disappointed in myself that it didn't occur to me to just go shopping on my own. Somebody actually had to kick me in the butt and make me go do that. But I'm glad that I did because it looks like, you know, the deal is going to go through and this is a phenomenal, I mean, this place is going to rent for eight, $900 a night and we're going to be living over the garage <laughs> rent free. That's amazing. So it's going to be yeah. like a true luxury property. Is that in the Smokies also? It is. Yep. It's in the Smokies. Yep. <clears throat> That's amazing. And that really does just go to show you just, you keep going until you get a yes. You'd never take no for an answer. Amen. <laughs>
So Karen, you own in all these different markets. You're a very experienced short-term rental investor. So what constitutes a good deal to you? What are you looking for when you're looking for a new market or for a new property within a market that you're already in? So I've bought things two ways. In Biloxi, I bought a couple fixer-uppers and I was at distance. So I was living in Vermont and we were doing this down in Biloxi and I bought turnkey. Uh, honestly, I prefer turnkey. The buying remotely and trying to fix these things up, it can be done and we did it, but it was really stressful. And um, I just would prefer not to do it again. <laughs> so I like to buy turnkey is the biggest thing. Um, and the next thing that I look at, obviously, is the returns. So cash on cash to me is huge. My goal is to leverage as much as I can and have as little money of my own money in the deal. Um, the next thing I look at is regulations. So since I got burned down in Biloxi, even though in Biloxi met when I met all my criteria. So one of the criteria is how long has this been a short-term rental vacation market? Meaning, did it exist before Airbnb and VRBO? And the answer was yes. Um, so I always look for that. Uh, how long has it been a vacation rental market? You know, I would never try to buy anything in the market that didn't already have vacation rentals or that um, looks like it. they're kind of on the fence. Like I always look at the newspaper clippings and things. The other thing I look at is how much economy, how much of the, the local um, government, or how much revenue do they generate from short-term rentals? And it might be kind of counterintuitive, but if you see a tax on short-term rentals, that's good. That means that the local government is dependent upon that, that economic driver coming out of the short-term rental industry. And it's very um, unlikely that they're going to turn around and like cut it off at the knees. Um, markets where I'm seeing things get challenged, Biloxi is one of them. Um, they don't have a, a specific tax for short-term rental uh, accommodations. They just don't get it. So they don't have one and they don't seem to care about them. Vermont is another one. There's a bunch of legislation right now where they're trying to change all the rules in Vermont. Um, and Vermont does not have any taxes aimed specifically at short-term rentals. So they don't see it as a revenue source and they don't care if they chop it off at the knees. So those are really the three main things that I look at. That's really great advice. So if you see a tax on short-term rentals in that market, that means that they've already been through all of the decision-making on regulations and things like that. It is a revenue stream for the city and the county, so they need them to be there, and it would just be detrimental to regulate against them is what you're saying. Yep, absolutely. That's really great advice because I think a lot of investors might be looking for a market and then they look into something and think, oh, sweet, we're not going to be taxed on this. This is amazing. But those are the ones that you really actually have to watch out for. Yep. And the less regulations on them, actually, the worse it's going to be, because I can tell you that the regulations are coming. It's not if, it's when, because a lot of the, um, the hotel motel industry wants these things to be regulated because they're regulated. And what happens typically what you see with the regulation is the hotel motel lobby comes in and they push for over-regulation, right? And then the small group of short-term rental owners, this I've seen this play over time and time again, the short-term rental operators organize themselves and they fight back and they wind up somewhere in the middle. 
Meanwhile, if you're an investor, if you're one of those people that bought before the regulations come in, you're kind of hanging in the balance because it can always go the other way and be like, well, you know what? We're not going to allow this at all. You're done. Get out. So you want to go buy somewhere where the regulations are already fairly established. And when you go to apply for a short-term rental operating permit, it's very clear what you have to do. If they don't know what they're doing or they don't know what to charge you or they can't get you in contact with somebody very easily that can give you like firm guidelines or even like a website on what you have to do to register, I would be very wary. Really, really sound advice there, Karen. So do you have a favorite property that you own uh, in any of the markets that you're in? I would have to say, um, and I just left it. Uh, I was down there for a couple of weeks. The one that I own in Shores of Panama. So I have a property that it's just a, it's a two bedroom with a bunk um, on the 15th floor. But when you walk into this property and you look out the sliding glass doors, um, so I have a view directly to the front and a view to the left. Like all you see is ocean. You don't see the beach. You don't see the building. I, I love that property. I love waking up there. I love the balcony. Um, there's a certain way you can sit where the building is shaped like a U. So if you look like head on, you can see the ocean. And if you look a little bit to the left, you can kind of see all the activity that's going on in the U in the building, like at that big pool that I talked about earlier. Um, I love it there. That's my absolute favorite. Love it. What about your highest performer? Oh gosh. So my highest performer, um, before I get this big house fired up, because that thing's going to smash it, uh, is the one out in Weir's Valley. And it's a, it's a three bed, three bath. Every bedroom has its own bathroom as an ensuite, which I'm learning is a very popular configuration from a guest standpoint. That thing just, kills it. It's just a three, three, and it did a hundred thousand last year. And that was with COVID. That's amazing. That those are great numbers. And I love where's Valley personally. I've got two there that, and they, they crush it. And you're right. The ensuite in every bath, in every bedroom really is a draw because, you know, nobody wants to have to walk back and forth in front of people, potentially in front of people, you know, in their pajamas or mm -hmm. anything like that. So it's really nice to have a private bathroom for each guest. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's been a big, big, big hit. Um, I really do like that configuration and that's just a nice cabin. It also has decks on every level um, with really nice views of uh, Weir's Valley. So yeah, it's, it's quite the performer. Everybody in the Smokies kind of gravitates towards that Gatlinburg view, the big majestic mountain range view. But I really love the Where's Valley views because you're still looking, you saw the view of Cove Mountain, which is in the Smoky Mountain National Park. But in front of it, you have these view of Where's Valley, which is all these cute little picturesque farms. And in the morning, you can see smoke coming up from people's chimneys. It's just so cute is the word I'm going to use. I love mm -hmm. it. Yeah. I love Weir's Valley. I think it's a, you know, and it's quite a community. If you like, even from when I bought a year and a half, two years ago, there wasn't a whole lot there, but it's kind of like springing up. There's all these cute little quaint shops, you know, opening up along the side of the street. There's the Carver, a couple of Carvers are down there. It's just kind of like a little destination in and of itself. Um, and I, I think it's just the perfect amount of distance too from like Pigeon Forge and Gatlinburg. It's, it's not too close, but it's kind of far enough away to where you can really kind of get out of all of the traffic that's in Pigeon Forge and, and just kind of relax and unwind a little bit. 
Yeah, they just opened up a food truck court there, which I think is very hip of Where's Valley called Where's Valley Social. And there is the best barbecue place that uh, next week when I get back to town, I am totally going to smash it. It's called uh, Grill Billy's. It's amazing. Ooh, I'm going to have to go check that out. <laughs> yeah. Love me some good barbecue. Yeah, it's great. So switching gears for a minute, you are an agent in the short-term rental space in the Smokies. So let's talk a little bit about uh, what you're... What do you see? Because you have a lot of clients, you do a lot of business. So what is one thing that you see people get tripped up on the most as they're looking for properties here, or even as they're under contract in the Smokies? So the thing that you get tripped up with the most, especially the first time investors, and and I made this mistake too. um, They think, well, even though I could afford something bigger, let me get this little small thing because I got to learn how to do it. Um. That's, that's nonsense. It takes the same amount of energy and effort to learn how to run like a two or a one bedroom cabin as it does to run a five, six, seven, eight. So we see that the returns on the higher bedroom counts are much better. So my advice to them is always don't play small, swing for the fences, buy the biggest amount of bedroom counts you can afford because the performance is going to be better and you're going to have invested the same amount of time. Even from a guest standpoint, you know, they're like, Oh, there's more people. Well, who cares when you are booking through Airbnb or VRBO or even your own website, you're still dealing with one person, whether they're booking for 15 people or two people, you're still interfacing with that one guest. It's not like you're interfacing with every single one of the guests that's traveling in the party. So that's my biggest piece of advice is I'm always like, guys, like, is this really all you can afford? If it isn't fine, let's do it. But if you can afford more, you're much better off buying one than buying like, if you have like $800,000 to spend, buy one $800,000 cabin that's really big and it's going to give you the performance rather than like two two bedroom cabins. Because with two twos, now all of a sudden you've doubled your management time because instead of worrying about one, you've got to worry about two. That's cleaners for two. That's maintenance for two. So I always tell them, you know, buy the biggest amount you can afford and don't be afraid of the learning curve. You know, we have a lot of resources available to our clients to help them learn how to run these short-term rentals. So I'm always like, don't be afraid about learning how to do it. And plus I know what I'm doing. So I'm always willing to help them get their short-term rentals and things set up. So swing big, don't, don't play small. That's really great advice too. I always recommend that it, so if you're an investor and you have a certain amount of capital to spend specifically on short-term rentals, I definitely recommend going with a fewer number of larger properties than a larger number of smaller properties, because just the efficiency of management is aside from the fact that the returns are higher, the efficiency of managing one versus several is just, it's a big time saver. Yeah, absolutely. And you have remote self-managed all of your properties from the get-go, correct? Never had a property manager? I will never hire a property manager over my dead body. (laughs) (laughs) Why is that? Um, Well, first of all, they take your return and it goes way down because they charge anywhere in the Smokies. It's anywhere from 10 to 40%, some of these management companies. And when you start to run your numbers and you're doing your returns, you're starting to fit. That's that's your profit margin right there. And they're eating it all. Um, The cabins that I bought that were managed by property managers, um, 
they pretty much ran them into the ground. So like the one that I'm sitting in right now was managed by a management company who I will not say on this podcast. Great job. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I got in here, there was, everything was broken. There was nothing in the kitchen. It was supposed to be a cabin for eight people. There was four plates in the cupboard, like three glasses. Like it's, that's the type of stuff that they just don't care about. Um, and I think that if you want to do well in this space, you really have to care about things like that. And um, they don't. And I just, the idea of having someone stay in a place that I own that uh, and not having a really great experience really bothers me. So I, you know, th- and again, their, their interests are not, as much as they tell you it's in generating you income, they are not motivated to generate you the highest return that you could achieve. Their idea is heads and beds farther out into the future. So they love to book the calendars. Like I actually um, talked to a woman who was managing a cabin the other day that one of my clients was interested in. And she's like, oh yeah, well I have Christmas and Thanksgiving and, and all of the holidays booked. And I'm like, well, that's not very smart. So why did people book those? Because the bargain hunters are out there early. They're out there 30, 40, 60, 90, 180 days in advance trying to book these things. This one had a low rate. So the bargain hunters got in there. They swooped it up for probably, I would say, 50 to 60% lower than what the rate could be achieved if you just blocked those dates, unblock it when the date gets to be within 30 to 40 days and increase the rate. And you're going to book every time in this market because of people who like to procrastinate and book last minute. But a property manager is never going to do that for you because they don't have the time. They just like to look at their books and know that, you know, 60, 70, 80 days out, they have a pretty decent occupancy rate because they're, they have a whole set of expenses that they're trying to support. And so they're looking at future revenue streams, making sure that they can cover their expenses and things of just operating their business. So their motivation is completely different from what a private owner's motivation is. And that's not even talking about like the whole maintenance thing. Like they, you know, most of them could really give a crap if their stuff broke in your cabin. They're not going to tell you. And some of them don't even write bad reviews on the guests. Um, there's one really big nationwide company that it does not matter what the guest does to your your pl- your place. They will not write a bad review on them. So I really just think that they're they're um, not a good option. And again, you know, we have a ton of tools and resources that we can teach our clients, so they don't have to pick a property manager. And I spend a lot of time coaching my clients on that. I'm like, you don't need a property manager. You can do this on your own. Just focus on automation. So that this doesn't become an extra job for yourself. 100%. So property managers, they're kind of, I'm sure there are, there are some great ones out there. We, most of us here at the short-term shop and our clients don't use self, uh, don't use property managers. We all self-manage. So really they're kind of glorified schedulers and there's not, I think what you're saying is there's really not anything that a property manager can do for you that you can't do from your smartphone other than suck all the cash flow out of the deal. Yep, that's true. And and make you irritated because they're <laughs> going to do things that you would never do if you were managing it yourself. Okay, yep. so they're going to suck all the cash flow out of the deal and they're going to piss you off. Got it. Yes, <laughs> yes, ma'am. Awesome. So there's one thing that you said when you were talking about that, that I want to take a minute and zoom in on. So 
you block your calendar up until about 30 days out in order to maximize revenue. Most people, when they're getting into this, they're so focused on getting bookings and getting bookings and getting bookings that they don't even strategize. They just want to see that full calendar all the way out to, you know, however long out in the future. Tell me how you came to that strategy. Um, you're going to laugh, <laughs> uh, but I neglect. So I had, uh, I had blocked some dates in my calendar. Oh, okay. I remember what it was. So I had a cleaner that was going to come and stay. And it's actually this property here last December. And, um, I blocked the dates for him forever ago. And I, I treat my cleaners really well. And I know that that I was going to make a buttload of money, but I was like, I want to do this guy a solid because I want him to always take care of me. This is my cleaner in the Florida market. And he had a family and, you know, they don't make a ton of money. I mean, let's face it. And it's whatever dollar they do make. It's a very hard one, as you know. So I said, all right, you know, I'm going to give this thing to him at a big discount. I'll just block the dates. So I blocked the dates. Turns out stuff happens. He can't come. I forget. Totally forgot <laughs> the dates are blocked. So I have a virtual assistant and, um, you know, we go over the business every Thursday, all the financials and stuff. And um, for whatever reason, we just were not paying attention to the calendar on this cabin. And it got to be like December 10th or 11th. And I looked at the calendar. And I'm like, what the hell? Like McMakin ought to be booked. There's nobody. Oh, my God, it's blocked. So I'm a dummy. I unblock it. Not even thinking about the rate. Well, it was even the rate rate tools will price them way too low. They just don't get it sometimes. So I unblocked it. This thing booked seriously within a minute. Within a minute. <laughs> I'm like, oh, timeout. Like I left a boatload of cash on the table. So then I started figuring it out. And so moving forward from that point, other holidays that we've had since then, like my other cabin hadn't been booked for New Year's yet. And so I went right out and I blocked it all up. And I waited till five days before New Year's. I unblocked it. I got over $1,000 a night for New Year's weekend. So I learned. <laughs> Benign neglect. That's how I did it. And now I do it religiously. If you go look at my calendar for all my Florida stuff, everything is blocked right now from June to the middle of August. All of them. Solid. I don't, I'm not taking any bookings or anything. And I will be unblocking them probably around the middle of May and increasing my rates by about 50%. And I'll get it. That's ballsy. You know what? You can always drop it, That's but true. you can never <laughs> go back up. So if I look at it and I'm not getting bookings, I'll just keep dropping it like 10% a day in the pricing tool. And eventually I'll get a booking, but yeah, like I've, and by doing this, I've really been able to drive my revenue a lot more. Like I'm up way over last year. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. That was gold, Karen. <laughs> so one thing that I want to ask you about uh, from a past deal that you and I did together with the unnamed property management company. So something that we see when we're buying in short-term rental markets where properties that we're buying are previous active vacation rentals is there being stipulations to the sale that you have to keep the property on the current property management company for X amount of time. Now, I'm not entirely sure that that's even legal. I'm certainly not going to be the face of that 
crusade, but <laughs> I don't know that it is. So, but we see that a lot in all the, all the vacation rental markets. So you actually stood up to the biggest, one of the biggest property managers in the Smoky Mountains. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that without naming names and how that went and what you did, what you would do okay. different? Um, so what, the way that went down was, uh, with this particular company <laughs> during the closing process, there is a piece of paper you're supposed to sign. And it is the listing agent's responsibility to provide that piece of paper and to let the real estate agent that works with this management company know what's going on. Well, everybody kind of fell asleep at the wheel. And and I and then you and I were, and I we talked about it a little bit. And uh, I said, well, look, we're just not going to say anything about this because it's their obligation to get this piece of paper signed or at least shove it in front of us to sign it. And they never did. So we get, closing and I remember asking the day before I'm like hey Aves did you hear anything you're like nope I said good so we went to closing the property piece of paper never got signed um of course as soon as it went through and we were closed everyone woke up and was like well oh my god you have to sign this and I said no I don't I said that is not my problem I said that contract is with the the owner it is not with me there was a lot of pushback um the sad thing was the owner actually did a bunch of work for this management company um, and his livelihood was going to be impacted. But at the end of the day, when I did the analysis and how much revenue I was going to lose, because this was six months and I closed in April. So they essentially would have gotten all of the revenue off of this cabin all the way through the summer, which is essentially like your peak months in the Smokies. Um, so I said, no, I said, I'm not signing. And so they threatened to sue me and I said, good. So I went and I hired a lawyer um, and he looked at the whole thing and he agreed with me that the contract and the problem was between the, the seller and the management company. I really had, they really could not come after me for anything. He said, but you know, he said, if you really want to be super clean about this, if they ever did drag this to court, he said, you really should do some kind of gesture of goodwill. So what I wound up doing was saying, okay, I will honor 30 days of your bookings, but only as a courtesy. And you have to move all the other ones out by, you know, whatever the date was. Um, so that's how we wound up doing it. It was, it was kind of a mistake on the agent's part, but I've since done deals and um, in that development and I just don't say anything. Like it, in my opinion, it's up to the listing agent to make sure that all of the paperwork's getting signed. Um, and actually it didn't really, this last one, my clients wound up having to agree to it, but uh, I waited until the very end. Like if it had closed without coming up, I wasn't going to say boo. And I was going to give them the name of my lawyer and be like, this is the guy to go talk to to get this done. So, <laughs> um, but just a minute, you know, so on that six month requirement, I don't like them. You know, my preference is if my clients can get, get a property without having to take that on, I certainly, that's the preferred approach to not be forced into it. But there's also, it's not a horrible, horrible, horrible thing. We're talking about, sometimes it's less than that too. Sometimes it's only 30 days. So it really just depends. But if you look at like six months period of time, you still generally, even with a management contract in place can cover your cost. So you're not going to lose anything. 
if you're a new investor and you're trying to figure all this stuff out and this is your first property, it's not horrible to have a property with a management contract on it because it buys you six months to get your act together and learn the systems. The other thing is, in this particular case for my clients in this development, they bought something that had a ton of deferred maintenance on it. It needs a lot of work on the outside. It needs staining and decks and stuff like that. I would rather have the management company take all those reviews than my clients take the reviews. So my clients are using that six months to make those improvements that they need to make and get it to the pristine condition they want it in so that when they finally do assume control and start managing the property, they're going to they're gonna be queued right up to get amazing reviews. And in the meantime, it's been this silly management company that's gotten all of these bad reviews because, you know, there's, it's clearly got some deferred maintenance on it. So it's not always a bad thing. Um, there is some good occasionally to taking on these management contracts, but don't take them on forever. Right. And sometimes the way, especially the way the market is now being such a tight seller's market, yep. sometimes if it is brought up during the deal before it closes, Sometimes you just have to bite the bullet and take it on just to get the property done. But it's very rare that it's going to be six months. Usually it's 30 days, but sometimes you just have to do it to get the property. Yes. Yeah. And, and, you know, you, as an investor, you're in this for the long game. If you're buying these things and you're so short-sighted that all you care about is what you're going to make in the next six months, you're probably not going to do well. Um, you really need to have the bigger picture and the long game in mind. Because even still, so what they have it, the property is still appreciating in value. And you're not, it's not costing you a thing. Like generally they cover all the costs. So it's essentially free appreciation. Like, okay, it's not so bad. I, I personally don't think it is. So if I, if I had, if I had to do this again and I had to take something with a management contract in the current market, I would probably do it only because I know what the performance is here and what the potential is. Right. Sometimes you just have to get through it and then your pot of gold is on the other side of that. So last three questions of the podcast, Karen, uh, what advice would you give 20 year old Karen? That you don't know everything. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't hurt you to reach out to people around you and, and learn. Um, you know, I spent a lot of, I was an only child and I, I just was always ingrained in me. You just do everything yourself. So I never really reached out. Um, I didn't read a lot of books, you know, I read a lot of books, but I read a lot of the wrong books. Um, one of my favorite quotes out of a book that I read, um, is, uh, don't let school get in the way of your education. <laughs> it's a good one. And I kind of did that. Yeah. So piggybacking off of that question, what advice would you give a new investor who's trying to get started in the current market? Swing for the fences. Don't play small. You, you will get nowhere if you're playing small. Just swing for the fences. Do it. Lean forward. Um, I will say in the last year and a half, like I've completely transformed. You know, even with some of those buys that I was doing earlier on, it seemed like it was great and stuff, but I complete, I just have a completely different outlook on everything I do. You know, it's like the 10 X idea of just play as hard and as full out as you possibly can. Great advice. Piggybacking 
again on your on your book uh, statement. So what is your favorite book that you've read or favorite book you've read recently that has impacted your mindset? I actually have two. Um, my first one is Who Not How. Great. Love, 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 love that book. It's a super easy read. Um, I didn't read it. I did the podcast, right? Um, or not the podcast, the audio book. Um, just love the whole idea of, I mean, the way stuff gets done in the real estate community is who you know. Like there's a little bit of how there, but it's really more about who and developing those relationships and realizing that um, you may not like doing something, but there's probably somebody else out there who loves doing that job and you just have to find who they are. And so that has really, really changed me. And then the other thing, um, and I'm probably saying this because this is the audio book that I'm, I'm on right now, but I love this book called Limitless. Uh, it talks a lot about this whole idea of like digital dementia and um, being so engaged in like the digital environment where you, you just kind of like check out and it really teaches you the, the way to learn. It's kind of like unlocks the keys to how you learn and um, the ways to be like most effective and how your brain works. It's kind of like, I, I feel like once you figure this, these set of principles out, it's going to make everything else you have to learn and do moving forward all that much easier. So I just love the book. I wish I had listened to it a long time ago. I think it's going to be, I'm not done yet. I'm about halfway through, but it's a game changer for me. Like it's going to be right up there with like rich dad, poor dad. Oh, really? I, nobody has suggested that one yet. I haven't read it. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, it's, it's good. It's really good. The guy um, who wrote it had a brain injury when he was young and he was just told there's all these things that you're never going to be able to do because you have this brain injury. And he, you know, flew in the face of all of that and has achieved a lot of, a lot of things they said he couldn't do. And it's just kind of a testament to how adaptive um, the brain is. And, and uh, it's just really pretty much it, the, the title of limitless. Like there's just really no limit to what the human brain can do and achieve. It's pretty cool. Awesome. I'm going to check that out right now. I'm going to go download it on Audible. And uh, thank you so much for coming, Karen. A lot of great advice. And where can our listeners get a hold of you? Oh, goodness gracious. So I have, gosh, I'm out on LinkedIn. I have, um, you can look up my short-term rental business, Stargazer Stays. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. Um where else can you hit me up at? I don't have like a personal website or anything like that. I'm not that important. So yeah, go, like go to my own, go to my business website. You can find me there. Uh, you can email me, Karen at stargazerstays.com. Awesome. Stargazer stays. Well, Karen, thank you so much for coming on. We hope to have you back soon and have a great week. Thank you.